I always take comfort in uh, when Jesus said to his disciples, don't worry about what you're going to say when you stand before kings and rulers. I'll give you the words in those moments. And I'm, so I haven't prepared anything this morning. Just, <laughs> just kidding. Um, yeah, it's a blessing to, uh, to be with you this morning and to open up God's word. Um, as Josh was saying, Obed, Obed's, uh, his jaw is painful right now, so we'll, we'll keep him in our prayers this week. There was some funny uh, videos that were circulating of our pastor and on social media. <laughs> it was, it was uh, our pastor drugged up and talking nonsense, so kind of funny. Thought it best for him to sit this one out. So, uh, so we're continuing our journey through the book of Acts this week, and um, you know we've we've been studying through the church, uh, the growth of the church, and the journey of the church for the past over a year. We've been in the book of Acts, and um, a couple more months. I think we have about two and a half months to go, and we'll be we'll be wrapped up with the whole book. Um, so it's been awesome to see the church. Uh, the early church growing and wrestling with the expansion of God's kingdom in a culture that is pretty hostile at times to the gospel. Um, today we're going to be looking at just that, when the gospel goes forth and disrupts the status quo and draws uh, people, um, lost people, to God. Um, so without further ado, would you turn in your Bibles... Um, to Acts chapter 19. We're going to be in Acts chapter 19, verse 21 through 20, verse 6. Acts chapter 19, verse 21 through chapter 20, verse 6. This is actually a pretty fascinating narrative here that we're going to read. It's got some, some devious characters and an angry mob, and God's power is on display. So would you hear the reading of God's word? Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines for Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only in this trade of ours, May come into disrep- uh, there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the, the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the, worship, or the, and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, so that the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs 
who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out in one, with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and his craftsmen and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are prone consuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be charged with rioting today. Um, sorry, I lost my place there. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Uh, chapter 20. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews... He was about, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter, the Berean, son of uh, Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came, with, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, we thank you that you've given us this story to ponder this, this morning. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would Awaken us to what you are speaking through it to us today. Lord, would you give us ears and eyes to peer through what is, unse what is seen and temporary for what is unseen and eternal this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. In your name, amen. Well, in many ways, this, this passage... Um, is is reminiscent of so much of what we've what we've been studying in the book of Acts this past year. Paul finds himself once again drawn into the center of a conflict after calling out false beliefs and false idols that he sees all around him. And it's also not the first time that Paul finds himself in a situation that has turned violent and that is threatening his life. 
So just to give you some context um, for this passage, it says uh, earlier in, in uh, chapter 9, verse 9 and 10, that Paul has been speaking boldly for Jesus in Ephesus for about two years. It says, So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And what we focused on last week was the amazing work that God had been doing through Paul in Ephesus. In verse 11 and 12, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out, came out of them. There was a significant spiritual shift that was happening in the city of Ephesus and throughout the whole region. God was at work and the spiritual climate was changing in a big way. We see in, in verse 17 through 20, it says, And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, uh, came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver." so that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What was happening here was really just an amazing revival. God was working in profound ways in people's lives in this place. They were publicly confessing their sins. People were coming forward, confessing their, their past sinful practices, magic and divination, and extolling and fearing the name of the Lord Jesus. And this is a full-on revival that we see in Ephesus. Paul is getting ready to go to Jerusalem and eventually Rome, but before he leaves, we hear the story of this riot that breaks out. God is at work in Ephesus, disrupting the status quo of what had been going on there spiritually. But not all people are happy about this. Again, this is not uncommon for Paul. Wherever we find him preaching God's word, opposition is right around the corner. This is something we've seen throughout the book of Acts. God, and his, God is working in his people and freeing people from bondage, and there's oppression and opposition in the face of this. And in today's passage, the, the kind of the flashpoint of that is centered around this, this goddess Artemis in the temple there in, the, in the, the middle of the city we see this opposition coming out in the form of a riot, which is motivated because of the loss of business by some of the craftsmen. We see this silversmith, Demetrius, he's leading the charge against Paul because, he's, uh, because of his failing business. He wants to make money through the trade of creating these idols and recognizes that what Paul is preaching is not helping him. Demetrius leads the charge against Paul and in verse 25 through 27, we get some of this propaganda here. This, listen to this. this. This is great. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has been persuading and turning people away, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great, Art uh, great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be deposed of her magnificence. 
she whom all Asia and the world worship. Of course, he's not so concerned only with his own business here, how virtuous he is. He's, he's also concerned that the great goddess Artemis might be deposed, he says. This seems pretty on par with what we've heard Paul preaching in other instances throughout the book of Acts. In Lystra, in, in Acts chapter 14, in Philippi, in Acts 16, and most famously in Athens, Paul fearlessly confronts the idols wherever he sees them. And he points out the opposition to the truth of who God is. In Athens, Paul uses the worship of idols as a bridge to talk about the true, uh, the true living God who created all things. But even so doing, he's confronting the lie of idolatry that he sees, and he's calling out their practices. The idolatry that he's confronting out is nothing new. We see this throughout scripture. Idol worship and idolatry is a constant temptation for God's people to turn away from the living God and turn to idols. If we look at the Ten Commandments, right from the, the first time God lays out his covenantal um, guidelines for us as his people, um, I think it's fascinating that the first commandment focuses directly on this is issue of idol worship. It says, you shall have no other God before me. I don't think it's an accident that the first commandment deals directly with this issue of idol worship. Because you can never break, uh, you can never break commandments 2 through 10 without first breaking the first commandment. Whatever other commandment you are breaking in the Ten Commandments happens because you first broke the first commandment. Idolatry is at the root of every other sin that we commit and every other command that we may break. So why does the first commandment begin with this idea of idolatry? I think it's because God knows our feeble hearts, how easily our hearts can turn um, to some lesser God than to the living God. Basically, so often we are content to settle for less than what God would have for us, what he wants for us and is calling us to. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. Maybe you've heard this before. Um, he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. I think that that kind of encapsulate this, uh, encapsulates this idea of idolatry in our lives. So this morning I want to focus on a few points that I hope will help us contextualize kind of what is going on in this passage and how do we think about it in the context of our own lives. So first, um, I think we need to discern what the idols are in our lives and in our world. Second, in order to destroy our idols, we need a right understanding of God's worthiness to receive our worship. And third, we need to, we need to worship God in opposition to our idols. So first, we need to discern and expose the idols in our lives and in our world. I think half the battle here in discerning what they are 
is, um, is just having our eyes open to see our lives clearly. Obviously, the, the idols in this passage on the outside may look differently than what we see in our world today. Um, but in many ways, I think they're even more deadly to the life of faith in God. We're no longer dealing with the obvious statue or the shrine or temple in the center of our city. And because of that, we need keen eyes to detect what the idols are in our lives. Although much less obvious, we need to be careful not to underestimate the power and the subtlety that these idols can have in our lives. The pastor, uh, Tim Keller, has written a lot on this idea of idolatry in our world. He writes that an idol is anything, even a good thing, that we've made an ultimate thing. An idol is, an, is anything that, we, that has become so central in our life that you can't have a meaningful life if you lose it. An idol is anything that has become so central in your life that you can't have a meaningful life if you lose it. Can you think of anything in your life that has moved maybe ever so slightly into this place of um, becoming an ultimate thing in your life? I would argue that this can be a subtle and, and, and can be really subtle and hidden underneath really good God-given gifts in our lives. Our health and our well-being, our happiness. Surely God wants us to be happy. Our family, our children, these are good things, but have they become ultimate things? Our career or success in work and school, our physical appearance or a relationship that we're in or longing to be in, how quickly these can take the ultimate places in our lives unless we are careful to orient ourselves around the gospel of Christ. I love how Paul in these passages in Acts doesn't just observe that there are many man-made gods in your city, but he also presses in on them and says, and they are really no gods at all. He doesn't just point out this observation, he exposes it and refutes it with the truth. So diving in a little bit deeper into the idols in our lives and in our world, Tim Keller points out that there are three different kinds of idols. There are personal idols, religious idols, and cultural idols. He states, any life that's not built on God's glory and his grace is going to be built on the deification of something else. It's going to be built on turning something else into a pseudo-savior, some way in which you save yourself without having to go to God. So I want to look at, at some of the examples of each of these three idols, the personal, the religious, and the cultural. So first... The personal idol of money. Um, this, is, uh, this is the idol that I think we're seeing directly in this passage in, in Acts. It says that the Greek goddess of Artemis, Artemis that we read about um, was the god of hunting, of the moon, and of fertility. And uh, because she was the god of fertility, she was the god of the harvest. And in this agrarian culture... Therefore, she was the god of financial prosperity for the, for the people. The temple in, Ephes in Ephesus was uh, a huge structure. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it became a huge tourist attraction. And therefore, became really wealthy. 
People came there to sacrifice and serve and honor Artemis because they wanted to become wealthy and prosperous. And Ephesus had become rich with all these people coming to the temple and buying their own statues to take home. And you can see how threatened Demetrius would probably be feeling um, as Paul shows up and things start to shift for the people in Ephesus. One scholar uh, wrote of Ephesus that the wealth and the splendor of the temple and the city were taken as evidence of Artemis Ephesia's power and were the basis for her local and international prestige. Despite the, su- the successive traumas of the temple destruction, it was, it was destroyed three different times by flood and fire. Each rebuilding, a gift in honor to the goddess, brought further prosperity. So you can see the perfect storm is brewing here. Demetrius and his craftsmen are starting to feel threatened when Paul shows up and the people in Ephesus and across the whole region of Asia start turning away from idol worship at the temple of Artemis. We just read earlier in chapter 19 that the people have publicly denounced their practices with the magical arts and burned their books worth 50,000 pieces of silver. And here is a silversmith, hungry for more money, seeing his business failing, and he's not happy. And when we look at, uh, before we look down our noses at Demetrius, I'm wondering if you've ever felt a little bit of Demetrius inside of you. If you start to squirm when you think of your own desire for prosperity and wealth being threatened. So it's it's tax season here. And uh, in case you didn't know, (laughs) we're figuring out what we need to pay or what we're getting back in a return. And I know for myself, there have been years in the past, I used to be self-employed, and there have been years in the past where I've made more money for some reason and... And uh, at the end of the year, I realized I need to pay more money in my taxes. And the desire within me of trying to hold on to that and, and to, to be dishonest or something, to fudge something on my tax return and try to keep what I had. And maybe you felt the same thing too. <clears throat> what are you willing to sacrifice to keep your money, to make money, And what are you willing to sacrifice to advance your career? I feel like this may be one of the biggest idols that we face here in San Diego in our current culture. We live in an extremely wealthy city, and the desire to have more, to make more, and to live a life of luxury is all around us. I don't know about you, but the the struggle for contentment with what I have is a constant battle that I feel like I'm always fighting for. Okay, so the second personal idol here, the idol of romance and relationship. This is a powerful one. If you've ever been in love with another person, it can be really hard to draw the line and to keep the relationship um, healthy with boundaries, keeping it from becoming idolatry, which is to look to this other person to make you feel valuable and worthy. If your relationships have no boundaries and you are in relationships with someone you know you shouldn't be in, it's because the boundaries have eroded and the, cons- and the relationship has grown into mythological proportions. And in a similar way, the personal idol of children. So this may, may seem odd to, to hear um, us talk about children as idols, but 
As a parent myself, let me tell you how easily this can creep in. I think there are lots of parents out there who are essentially looking to their kids' happiness and their kids' success and finding their own worth in it. Kids' sports, their accomplishments in academics and other activities can, can so easily drive a parent's own sense of self that they are essentially living through their kids. Or the other way around, a parent finds their worth only in the love that they receive from their kids. If a marriage between parents is rocky, one, parent's, one parent looks to the kids to find their worth, and the child can easily become an idol. So religious idols is the next section here. Religious, moral people, and church-going people can fall into idolatry in several different ways. Religious idols basically come in three forms. They can be truth, gifts, and morality. We cling to right beliefs, the gifts of the Spirit, or living a moral life instead of a relationship with God. We talked a bit about this last week and how we want to view the Holy Spirit. Um, Obed laid out a framework as a church that we want to avoid uh, we want to avoid thinking of the gifts as everything. That look, We look to the gifts as the only thing that matters. And getting caught up in the gifts rather than the God who is the giver of these gifts. The other side of the coin is ignoring the possibility that these gifts and miracles can take place at all. Basically claiming that the miracles we read of in the Bible were only for that time and place and no longer apply to our world today. Either side of this coin can easily become idolatrous. And this takes us right into truth becoming an idol. Having right belief and resting your salvation on that. Do we really believe, do we believe that we are saved because of our right doctrine or because of what Jesus has done? Yes, scripture and theology need to guide us into right belief and right doctrine. And those things do matter a great deal, but only insofar as it points us to Christ as the author of our salvation. If doctrine and holding to that only points us to us in our pride at having arrived at the truth and boasting about how right we are, we've made an idol out of it. So another religious idol is that of morality. This is basically saying, God, I do all these things for you. I come to church. I have my quiet times of prayer and reading the Bible. I avoid doing all these bad things. And therefore, God, you have to bless me. Don't get me wrong. Doing good things, doing all those things are, are good. Holiness and righteousness is what God is calling us to. But if we are trusting in what we have done for God and what we do for God, rather than what Christ has done for us, then we've misplaced our allegiance. We've made an idol out of them. Okay, so a couple cultural idols um, that we see in our world today. Human reasoning. We have advanced as a society and know all there is to know about the universe. Yes, the Bible is a good moral book, has some good teaching in it, but there are parts of it that our human understanding, human reason, does not understand. So that we'll throw those parts out 
And we as a society can reason our way through any of the problems or the issues that we face as a people, and we have made an idol out of our own human reason. Um, another cultural idol that I think is, is a big one in our world today is that of individualism. Um, especially in the Western, uh, the Western world, in America, everything in our culture revolves around our own desires and our own feelings, our individual choices, our autonomy, and our happiness, and our health and wellness is paramount, and everyone is entitled to their own reality. Individualism says you can feel that way about such and such, but you can't say anyone else is wrong. If you say something or offend another person, that is wrong. If you question another person's belief in God, or tell, something, tell someone their belief in God is wrong, that's not okay. In this passage, for Paul to preach openly about the idols he encountered in Ephesus and throughout the region is something that our modern world would just cringe over. Our idea of tolerance, I'm not sure how tolerant we actually are in our world. I would also point out that that Paul was calling out in, a fee, in Ephesus 2,000 years ago isn't totally foreign to our world today. <clears throat> I was having a conversation this week with, uh, with Josh, and he was pointing this out, that there are the same false gods and idols in our world today that we see in this passage. The, God, the false gods and idols, magic uh, practices going on all around us. New Age, spiritualism, crystals, fortune-telling, all these things are still in our world today. There's a market for those things in our world. And those that practice them, you can bet, would not be happy to hear someone calling them out and turning people away from their business. And just like Demetrius in, earlier in the, in the chapter, the sons of Sceva, what is really driving all of them in these practices is the money that they're making. Okay, so we could go on and on and on about different idols that we face in our world, in our lives. But what do we do to destroy these idols in our lives? How can we actually do anything about these idols in our lives and in our world? Just to be clear, I want to lay out how idols are, are actually really dangerous. They want to consume you. They want to kill you. They want to take your full allegiance. And we see this in the story. This, in the midst of this angry mob, Alexander, a Jew, comes forward to try to reason with the crowd. And most, most scholars agree that he was probably trying to distance himself and his fellow Jews from what Paul was all about. But Alexander is shouted down and he's canceled before he even gets a chance to speak. We see the cancel culture has been around for the last 2,000 years. It's nothing new. And an angry mob sees that he is a Jew, and he doesn't, they don't want to hear anything that he has to say. Paul's friends Gaius and Aristarchus have been dragged into the riot, and you can bet that they're probably fearing for their lives. The scene is hysterical. It's chaotic. Um, it says in verse 32, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them didn't even know why they had come together. It's a crazy situation. But I think we see a key 
to fighting these idols is in this story. We take our cue from Paul. Paul is the man in this story. He's not cowering in some corner somewhere, afraid of his life. I can imagine he's wanting to rush to the mob himself to to help out his friends who are caught. He's being held back by his friends. He's being courageous to preach Christ in the face of the idolatry he's found all around him. And he's wanting to run toward the crowd, not away from the crowd. Uh, Pastor Greg Morris puts it this way. Paul wished to go in among the crowd when he considered his brothers Gaius and Aristarchus captured by the crazed multitude looking for him, he wanted to enter the theater to stand and to die, if needed, with his companions. The madness of crowds in that theater set the stage for the madness of Christian love. A dramatization of Christ's greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We need to go to the idols in our lives and in our world, and we need to stand against them in the, in the power of Jesus' name. We need to confront the false gods in our lives and reorient ourselves around God and what his word tells us in spite of what our culture is telling us. All right, that sounds nice, but how do we actually do that? I think we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to preach uh, the truth of Christ who has died for our idolatry and we are given, we are forgiven and free from it. We need, um, we need to preach that Christ has also overcome the powers and principalities in this world. So when confronting the idols within us, we can say, Christ, you have died for my sin of making an idol out of money or my kids or my relationship. I'm now free from that. That's a reality that I'm free. It's an objective truth there. And at the same time, as we know this in our head, we know it in our hearts. We need to live in the reality of that triumph in order to pull our hearts off those things that we look to more than Jesus. We need to see more clearly what he's done for us and allow that to separate us from the temptation of idolatry. Okay, this brings me to my last point, that we need to worship God in opposition to our idols. I believe the church is designed in a way to be a support and a battleground against these idols in our lives and in our world. We see this happening in this passage. Nobody is acting alone. Paul is being supported by by the disciples and the Asiarchs and being urged not to go into the angry mob. It says in uh, verse 30 and 31, But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Paul has a community around him that loves him and supports the ministry God is doing through him. We also see this in the beginning of chapter 20 as Paul continues on his journey. We get a taste of the friends and supporters that he had circled around him. In chapter 20, verse 4, it says, uh, So Peter, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius, and Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus were all with him on this journey. So we, as the church, 
are called to follow the example of Paul. That we might support and encourage one another in destroying the idols in our own lives personally and also preaching against and standing firm against the idols in our surrounding culture. We as Christians are not designed to do this alone. We are called to do it in community with the church. In the face of our hyper-individualized society, where everything revolves around our personal preferences and feelings and choices, the church calls us to look out not only for ourselves, but also for our brothers and sisters, to, to encourage one another. Later on in Paul's life, he's in prison, and he's writing letters to encourage the churches, and he writes a letter to the Ephesian church. It's probably filled with, with these former Artemis worshipers that he lived with and he preached to. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the hope that belongs to your call. We're called to follow the example of Christ, and there's no better example of setting aside the interest of ourselves, being a servant. Philippians 2 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who, through the, um, who, though he was in form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So our worship together as the church is a huge part of, of us standing up to the idols in our lives and in our world. We worship God as a weapon to fight against the temptation to make gods out of lesser things. We worship God as a reminder of who he is and what he has done through the cross and the resurrection. We glorify God because he is the only one worthy of receiving our praise and honor. And in so doing, we pull down the lesser gods we are tempted to worship in our lives. When we stand before God in praise and adoration, um, the other altars that we're tempted to stand before fade to the background and they lose their power. We gain perspective on the lesser gods in our lives when we see the magnificence and glory of the one true God. As we close today, let me, uh, let me pray for us that we might be filled with this perspective and with this um, encouragement today. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story that teaches us so clearly how we need to form our lives around you. I pray that you would reveal to us more clearly what we have made into the idols in our lives. Lord, that you give us courage and strength to dethrone and destroy the idols in our lives. Would you help us call out and preach the gospel in opposition to the idols in our, in our lives and in our world? And would we rest in your finished work 
on the cross that has broken the power of these idols. And let this triumph reach deeper into our understanding so that we can live lives free of these idols, Lord. Would you take your rightful place in our hearts? Lord, we declare that you have supremacy over all things, God. We love you and we serve you alone, Jesus. In your name, amen.